Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, Mark, I've got a seasonal stack waddy, as is traditional this time of year, as we, as our thoughts turn towards the festive season. We think about We think about these five seasonal uh, records and uh, try to decide which of the five I invented. Okay? Yeah, go on. Here we go. Lou Reed... Christmas in February. De La Soul, Millie pulled a pistol on Santa. <laughs> Fallout Boy, you'll shoot your eye out. Sonic. Hang on a second. Fallout Boy, was it? You'll shoot your eye out. Yeah. Yeah. Sonic Youth, Santa don't cop out on dope. An old dirty bastard. Santa's in the clan. Okay. Which of those five is an invention? And which four are real? I'm convinced that I've heard the old Dirty Bastard song. I'm sure that's real. I, I, I may have imagined that, but I think so. Sonic News, Santa Don't Cop Out on Dope. Was that what it was called? Yep. Possible too. Fallout Boy, You'll Shoot Your Eye Out. Possible. Uh... Dilla Soul. Millie pulled a pistol on Santa. See, that's possible too. They're all possible, aren't they? And Lou, Lou Reed, Christmas, Christmas, Christmas in, February. in February. All of them are completely and utterly possible. Do you know, I'm going to say it's Lou Reed's Christmas in February is the, is the made-up one. Half his friends are stuffed into black body bags with their names printed at the top. Christmas in February. No, it's real. That's oh, real. for God's sake. Which is the fake one? The fake one is old dirty bastard Santa's in the clan, actually. No. Yes. That's the one I immediately thought I'd heard. Della Santa's Sol, in the clan. Della Sol and Millie pulled a pistol on Santa. None of the kids could understand what was the cause. All they could see was a girl holding a pistol on claws. Fallout boy. Fallout boy, you shoot your eye out. Don't come home for Christmas. You're the last thing I want to see. 
And Zonic Youth, Santa don't cop out on dope, because Santa do doesn't cop out on dope. Has he even tried it? Well, you know, the answer's no. There you go. So That's I fantastic. win. I win. I'm completely fished in. Absolutely. Literally doing sit-ups on the bank. Absolutely. I'm Hook in mouth. Very good um, work. Another thing you can do at this time of year, if, if like me, you use a Spotify, at the end of the year, they provide your year wrapped, you know, they provide a kind of audit of what you've listened to in the last year. So you can see at a glance what you've listened to most in the last year. And so now I'm, I'm about to do this live on the podcast. Are you ready, Mark? Oh, this is good. Go on, yeah. I'm about to click the little button saying, check it out. Check it out. <laughs> okay, here we go. I'm checking it out. It's redirecting me to Spotify, and it'll just take a minute to do this. It goes, hello, you. It's wrapped time. Ready? Let's do this. 2023 was a feast for your ears. You listened to 69 genres, Mark. 69 genres. 69 genres. How did your tastes stack up? Oh, they're going to give me a kind of... Um, they're going to rate you now, are they? No, they're going to show me. I think, okay, my, the category I listened to most was jazz. The second category wow. was, was classical, and the next one was swing. And then they've they, it's changed. They've been replaced by another graphic now. It's now going around the world showing me which... Um, which places in the world I listen to music from, I think. I don't know, something like that. Anyway, I played 3,499 songs in 2023, and these were the ones that really connected. Okay, my top song. Do you know what my top well, song was? Well, it's almost going to be the Teddy Bear's Picnic. She played your granddaughter's. No, it, Go on, though. It was Bark, Prelude in C. No. Yes, absolutely, my top song. Here they so come. Any regular uh, listeners would be expecting Steely Dan or uh, Tom yeah, White's yeah. or Randy hey, Newman. Go, go. These graphics keep changing. Come on. Here's a playlist of all the songs you know into your life. Oh, God, it's not going to do this quick enough for me to go through it. It is It is mainly going to be, say hello to your top artist, Johann Sebastian Bach. That's brilliant. And... and uh, Oh, gosh, give over. Next one. Um, you had something special with your top artist. Sorry, this is all taking far longer than I thought. Um, it's giving me... Bear with us, listeners. All those kind of We're things. We're busking here. Broken down. Yeah, I really am desperately busking here. And then number two is Count Basie. So, Johann Sebastian Bach, and then Count Basie. I think I'll be doing quite well. Number three, Leo Kotke. Leo Kotke. <laughs> The great guitar player. I love this Leo Cockett. Uh, number, number four, Teddy Wilson. Teddy Wilson, uh, jazz player. Um, and uh, who's coming in at number five? Fletcher Henderson and his orchestra. That's fantastic. <laughs> Fletcher Henderson. This is, this is what, so these are above Johnny Hates Jazz, are they, David? Uh, <laughs> just a bit. Early Duran Duran. Just a bit. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, those are the... The, has anyone ever told you you're a great listener? Well, you are. You spent 4,588 minutes listening. It shows me my top podcasts. Um, and, uh, okay, going past that. Yeah, go on, move on, move on, move on, move on. Uh, one moment, please, it says. It's, uh, we're turning off the lights. What does that mean? Good grief, I can't imagine. And it goes, that's better. 
The way you listen this year makes you a hero. Or maybe we should say anti-hero. Oh, dear God. Oh, for God's sake. People sit in offices and make up this stuff. They've got too much time on their heads, haven't they? They really have. So somebody who listens to uh, the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, (laughs) Count Basie, is a hero. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so there we go. What do you have? Johann Sebastian Bach, Fletcher Henderson, Leo Kotke, Teddy Wilson, and Count Basie. There's my my top stuff. And my top genre turned out to be jazz, Mark. So there you are. See, that's revealing, isn't it? But isn't that because you're playing that stuff to work too, probably? Yeah, it probably is. It's stuff that's background music when you're when you're writing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Rather than I'm going to race upstairs now. But then again, who wouldn't want to race upstairs and put on uh, the Count Basie Orchestra? Absolutely. And if you haven't done it already today, do it now. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Well, we're recording this on Saturday, and uh, two days ago on Thursday, we had the very, very sad, I suppose not completely unexpected news, that Shane McGowan had died. And we thought we'd ask old pal of the pod, uh, Belfast author and writer, Stuart Bailey, to to chip in and uh, give us a few thoughts about his life and art. So, Stuart, I mean, it's, oh, it's one of those extraordinary things where the news was announced around lunchtime on Thursday, and within, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes, enormous, very considered, very complicated obituaries had appeared. Which always indicates that this is not a surprise, that these things have been written some time ago. Very no, sad, though. Um, yeah, and, I, and I, I, a lot of my, sort of my acquaintances on social media who are close to the Pugs camp have been making bedside visits. He was released from hospital fairly recently. So it, the, the prognosis wasn't really good. Um, so, um, you know, I think he's a man with a, he was a man with a enormously powerful, um, constitution, but I, I think even Shane McGowan, I think it finally gave up on him and, um, I think it was a fairly wretched last period of time for him, but, you know, to see pictures of Bruce Springsteen, you know, uh, on, on route to his house and, um, sending his best and stuff and shaking his hand and stuff. That that was really nice, you know. It so was, I saw that. People did get the chance to to pay their respects at the end. When did he first enter your life? I would have been very uh I, I didn't see the Nipple Erectors when they played Belfast. They played the Harp Bar in nineteen seventy eight and uh I, I didn't know Shane McGann rang up the organizers and said, uh, should I keep my head down? And, and Terry Hilly answered, well, you better keep your drink down. That's a bit more important, you know, <laughs> but, uh, I, I didn't go down as one of the, the all time classic shows, but, you know, Shane obviously was part of that very early punk set. And then I think I remember uh, a late journalist called Gavin Martin, who had, who'd kind of been friends with Shane and said, oh, he's got this band and they're, they're, they're combining punk rock with folk music and Dark Streets of London would have been the first record that a lot of us heard. And um, I thought he sounded like Jake Burns from Stiff Little Fingers. He had that gravelly voice and, and it, it came out of punk, but obviously there was tin whistles and, and drums clattering along like 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 Irish bow runs. And, and, uh, and it was an amazing record. And um, I think I saw them live early... 84 they they came to Belfast and they played the Crescent Arts Centre and people just adored them and and folk music is a very um 
kind of divisive thing in, in the north of Ireland because sometimes it can be, you know, bring the messages that not everybody wants to hear. And everybody loved Pogues. It just cut right across that. And I, and I think they were a little bit more... They originally called themselves the New Republicans, and and, and that was a signal of intent. Really, uh, they were they were going to, um, you know, suggest that Ireland was for the Irish, and they got pelted with chips. There was there was a bunch of squaddies in in Cabaret Futura, the first game they played, and and they toned it down a little bit. And uh, I think that was the whole thing about the Pogues. There was a bit a deal of it was a cooperative. Jim Finer was was a brilliant musician. And, and lots of other people kind of uh, added their talents to it, but they they kept Shane's extreme politics to uh, a lesser level. Obviously, they came back with things like Birmingham Four and stuff, where they were uh, uh, the Guildford Four, Birmingham Six. So, so they were singing about stuff which like came that out later. about a year or two before both were released and pardoned, weren't they? Yeah, so it was, exactly. It so was, you know, had an enormous I, I, impact. It wasn't just um, empty gestures. I think Shane knew his history and he knew his story and he knew the grievances that he was singing about. So um, the, the first album, I think I just arrived in London and I arrived into the, the, the diaspora of North London where all these lost souls were running around. And Pogues, Pogues gigs were really important for, for finding your people and for feeling that you weren't alone. And... Uh, the annual St. Patrick's Day Pogues gig, which was normally at the town and country at the Forum uh, in Kentish Town. It was like a three-day event, really. You know, you, well, you needed a day and a half to recover, but uh, just every bar was just full of of lost Celtic souls. And, I, and it was a beautiful thing. You know, it was a period of mass immigration and busted social politics and all sorts of things. And Shane and the Pogues pulled it together. The first album sounded obviously like the Dubliners and the Clancy Brothers, and it was a weird throwback to the ballad boom and a lot of cover versions on it. But also, you know, streams of whiskey and stuff where, where Shane is summoning up the spirit of Brendan Bean. So, you know, there's a literary thing going on. There's a good songwriting thing. And before you know it, it's Power Brown Eyes and you're on the road to Fairy Tale of New York. So he, the second album... Um, so where would he? Can I can I just ask you about that? Where he might fit in in the literary tradition? Because I read an amazing piece in the Irish Times where it talked about his parents talking about how that he would he had read Dostoevsky and Joyce and was reading passages from Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake and he read War and uh, Damon Runyon and Sean Casey and D. H. Lawrence and Voltaire Sartre all by the age of twelve. Absolutely astonishing. Yeah. But where yeah, do you that's... feel that he fits in as a lyric writer in that kind of I suppose in the Irish tradition particularly? Well I I you know I think first of all then there would have been Barstool Boy by Brendan Bain, which was that yes. sort of rebellious soul. Um yeah. But uh, in, uh, and the boisterousness of it all, and you know that, that he, he was there from from the get go. But the joy scene stuff is there. The use of language and you know that those kind of floating images that go through songs like Pair of Brown Eyes" and stuff is is kind of joy scene, I think. And um, but but he he, he wore his, he wore his intelligence lightly. You know, you had to drill down very hard into Shane and he, he, he carried that sort of slightly bemused drunken persona almost as a a barrier really to, to, to stop you getting through to it but um, it was there and you know 
even Fairy Tale of New York is a is a title comes from a J.P. Dunleavy um, yes. story. You know, there's yeah. not that much connection between the book and the the song, but you know, certainly the Ginger Man by Dunleavy is a, is almost like a pug song uh, on the written word. So, um, I, I I think a lot of people, myself included came to realize that there was major, major talent there for, for that second album on. So you must have been, I mean, in terms of kind of literature, you must have been an almost a prodigy to, to, to have read those things at that kind of age and to ha- have that kind of familiarity with them. I think he was feral. You know, I think his parents um, gave him a, a, a massive leeway to do what he wanted to do. So, you know, as well as literature, there was psychedelic drugs, you know, right. in, in his early yes. teens, you know. So he was he was, he was, was kind of um, unfettered in a lot of ways. And, you know, he did get into Westminster School on a scholarship. And, and you know, that, that obviously they, they, they must have sussed him out with intent um, and, then, and, and then decided to chuck him out not long afterwards. But... Um, yeah, now music, popular music is blessed sometimes with people with outrageous intelligence, and Shane McGowan was was in that club. But as you, you say, to? as you say, I mean, he obviously had, you know, nowadays we would say, you know, addiction issues and so forth. Well, people didn't talk like that back in those days, did they? But but do you uh, just talk a bit more about that that persona that he projected? You, it was it was part of him, wasn't it? It was, it was probably a way of keeping that keeping the world at bay a bit. I think it was, and I, I, I spent I did quite a few kind of media journalist trips with the Pugs. I was in New York when they were making the, the they just finished the Fairy Tale of New York video, and then they played Two Nights at the Ritz with Joe Strummer on guitar, and it was it was it was absolutely I was just grinning the whole time. It was like my dream trip. Um, but, but, but Shane sort of seemed to be this kind of slightly dopey guy. And then you would say something, I remember saying something really banal, stupid about, oh, when, 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 you know, music got self-conscious in the, in the late sixties, something was lost and he just launched into this litany of seventies singer songwriters and, and, and writers and bands. And, and I, it, it wasn't like there was no delay, no response. It was like thirty names. He just threw them at me like a like a piece of mud. And and and, and then he and then all of a sudden he be, he, he went back to being chained. So that you know it, 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 it there was an alert thing. An, what kind of names person. was he mentioning? Sorry, what kind of names was he mentioning? He started talking about Graham Parsons. Um, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, it, it, it's kind of long gone, but. Um, I'll, I'll have to have a think and get back to you. But yeah, it was, you know, I think he mentioned Costello and he mentioned a few other names, but it was just like bang, 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 shut up, you know, and then, and then he became shit, don't be shit again. And mm. I was, I was, I was utterly, hum- yeah, well, I was kind of, I was put to rights and I was quietly humiliated, but, but it was great. And then we, we just went to a Japanese restaurant and drank all the sake that they could out in front of us and the, a very irate person from Stiff Records got in touch later and says you've drank all the proceeds from Fairy Tale of New York <laughs> and I was like well, what, why not eh? I don't think anybody could ever drink all the proceeds from Fairy Tale of New York because they're no. still continuing and they will continue yeah. for many years to come tell us a bit about uh, how he's regarded in Ireland because there are people in Irish music. I either read a quote the other day saying it was the worst possible thing that could happen to Irish traditional music. 
I mean, was, was there a kind of controversy around that? There's a preciousness about Irish music that surfaces now and again and, and people who perhaps were gatekeepers of that tradition. And, and obviously that tradition has suffered and endured a lot and not necessarily had a, an easy time of it. But there was a concertina player called Noel Hill who went on television and said the Pogues were, he, I think he called them an abortion of, of folk <laughs> music. And then about four months later, there was a beautiful instrumental on, on the flip side of a Pogues record called Planksty Noel Hill, which, you know, a Planksty is a tribute. So it was like they they kind of um, made their point in the most gracious manner. And, and Noel Hill, I think, recanted after that and said, oh, well, maybe I was wrong, you know. So, um, you know, sometimes a tradition likes things to be uh, frozen in, in amber, you know, and, you know, when a band like Lancome comes along, it, it kind of challenges that. So so every now and again, there is a rowdy arrival that, that, that makes folk music freshly relevant. And, you know, Pug, you know Shane's contribution really was, was, was bringing punk and, and that feverishness. And later a multicultural sound, you know, songs like Turkish Song of the Damned, but, you know, it became this, you know, using Arabian scales and all sorts of stuff. You know, they're a hugely versatile band. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing I was just saying to Mark before we started recording this. You know, that I was looking at some post records this morning. And the sound of them, they're just, there's a remarkable sound. It's a oh, it's, so, it's sound. beautiful. Because you're not used to hearing, you know, a whistle, you're not used to hearing banjos, not used to hearing accordions or whatever, or mandolins. And you've got all four in the same group. It's, it's completely unlike everything else that was going on at the time. And, and I think like a lot of bands, it was almost by stealth they became good. You know, I think obviously yes. like they really yeah. became great, but at the start they almost seemed like a comedy band. And I, yes. I, I remember the DJ. What do you call him, Simon? What was Mayo? 
what was he called? Oh, Mayo. Mayo? Yeah. No, no, no. That, no, no they, 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 who had the year chin thing? Oh, oh Simon Bates. Bates. Simon Bates. Simon Bates. Simon Bates played it and then started talking in a big Gora accent. Oh, good grief. Oh, God. And, uh, and he went, oh, the pugs, you know. And and, and obviously belittled them. And, and you kind of think, you know, this, you know, that this isn't the proper way to, to kind of respond to an interesting record. And, um, uh, you know, by, by album two, they, they, they were really swinging. And, and Cotto O'Reardon, a fantastic bass player as well. Elvis Costello produced a second album and, and kind of took it to magnificent places. And, and by that stage, they're off, you know. Right. But his, um, I mean, his, his drinking and heroin addiction, um, it just led to him them not no longer being able to tolerate him in in the Pope's. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I well, I, I saw him in Australia. I I'll, again dates fail me, but probably eighty nine, uh, and 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 he he was this kind of solitary figure where he was tolerated, but he wasn't part of the fun, you know. And they would all go off to restaurants and eat nice food and. <laughs> Some of them might take in the, you know, the art galleries or whatever, you know, and, and Shane seemed to be. Was he just not invited? Uh, and, and, and uh, I, then they, they kind of threw him out. You know, he was missing gigs. He wasn't doing all sorts of stuff. And then I was at the this uh, John Henry rehearsal rooms where Joe Strummer had sort of stepped into the, the shoes to, to take on the lead yes. vocals and Shane Gate crashed the interview and was trying to talk to the band while I was doing the interview. And as a journalist, you're kind of going, this is, I'm in this strange moment where, where there's a small piece of history happening and, and they kind of ignored him and he, he shuffled out of the room. And it was desperately sad because I think he wanted to be in the band, but hated touring and hated the, the, the kind of rigmarole that went with it. And then occasionally they would come back for the, you know, Christmas show me the money tour, you know, but the, 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 there wasn't the same heart in it, you know. Right. I dug out a, an old copy of Q magazine from 1988 when they were on the cover. The Booze Brothers was the headline, I remember. And um, I was just <laughs> no, amazed. No stereotype in oh, there. No, no, no. <laughs> and I was just amazed. Yes, the Booze Brothers, the staggering success of the, yeah. of the Pogues. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Sorry. But I was just amazed by the detail about the amount of drinking that was going on then. And this was just, you know, what is that, 35 years ago? And Shane himself, I think, had... Um, Shane had, uh, he was taking stomach pills. He just had pneumonia. He was drinking port and vodka. Spider Stacey uh, looked in terms of, Philip Chevron had stomach ulcers. Jem Finer had actually given up booze at that stage because he made himself so ill. So, it, I mean, it was genuine. He really did drink that amount, didn't he? So in some ways, it was astonishing that he survived for so long. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, sometimes, you know, you hear about people sort of who fall into the, the Rolling Stones camp like Bobby Keys and stuff, and who just yeah. couldn't, you know, he tried to keep up with Keith and, and it did him in, you know. Yeah. And, and I think there was people who were running on that pace and their, their their constitutions weren't that good. And there was a very black period then in, in the early 90s where a lot of the people around the pubs were dying, you know, to, her, to the crew and, and, and various people associated with them. And it became incredibly dark and... You know, a lot of the people who worked with the Pogues had literally swapped jobs from working with Thin Lizzy. There was a moment where the <laughs> died 
or the you know thin Lizzie went off the road and then the, the, the crew and everybody then started working for the pokes so it was a kind of an almost like deja vu thing. I thought the same thing is happening going. again. Yeah, yeah that, I know. and there was a few people where enthusiastically went, "Okay, here's here's our chance to party again." But I think there were other people going, "Oh no, you're breaking my heart, chain. You know, yeah, this is what we lost Philip this way, and now we're losing you." So um, behind the scenes, it was terribly fractious and terribly painful a lot of the time. Mm. It's touching that he was with his, eventually his wife, but uh, Victoria uh, Clark for forty-one years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an that's an astonishing side of this, this story. Well, that that's a test of your loyalty, isn't it? So, uh, okay. and, and and I think at the end, you know, regardless, I think a lot, a lot of bridges were rebuilt near the end, and 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 Victoria became the keeper of the. The, the the you know the 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 Shane name and the Shane brand and there was a beautiful moment for his sixtieth birthday which you've probably seen clips of where they where they assembled everybody in Dublin and everybody had you know Nick Cave and Bobby Gillespie oh yeah Bono and and, yeah. and and everybody had a run at those songs and those songs will never die you know the we're probably talking about 15 songs at least that are that are of a certain level. I remember Liam Clancy going the broad majestic Shannon and he started reading it like a piece of poetry. And and he says that he, Shane said it was written about me, but it was really written about Shane because it's so sad, you know, but the, you know, he, he, that, that, that you're talking about three, four generations of, of musicians right up to bands like the Mary Wallopers now who, who, who kind of have taken, inspiration from Shane. Well, and Springsteen said the same thing, didn't he? He said, I don't know what people are going to be listening to in 50 years' time or something. Yeah. But they'll Steve certainly Arrow be listening to another powers. one. You know, the Americans were going, this guy, and Tom Waits, you know, the, who, who were literally going, I understand this, which, which is incredible. Well, also, Americans have a very strong connection with that kind of music, don't they, through the yeah. American roots and uh, thousands of sailing, etc. Well, yeah. so Fairy Tale of New York will probably be number one this year, and uh, and probably next year as well, and far into the future. Stuart, thanks very much indeed. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. I got a surprise this week, Mark. Go on. John Mayall turned ninety. I know. I saw that. It's astonishing, isn't it? Because John Mayall, I feel I ought to just. Explain this to younger listeners, and all our listeners are younger than us, surely. In fact, there's a test. If you're a listener who's older than we are, we want to hear from you. Yes. Prove it. (laughs) Prove it. Show you the birth certificate. Anyway, now I feel I ought to explain to um, younger listeners just what a big deal John Mayall was when I was out of the 1920 or something like that, um, you know, in, in the in the late 60s and early 70s. And now I was kind of surprised that he was still with us, but obviously he is still with us. Because he seemed yeah. old then, didn't he? He was old Because he was then. old. We now know he was born in 1933. And so when I first remember him in 63, well, it must be mid-60s, he would have been about 35 when he had the Blues Breakers with, you know, and all those people were in it, Clapton and John McVie and Peter Green, Jack Bruce, Mick Taylor, John Heisman. I mean, he was a very significant figure for me. I thought he was well, fantastic. He, he was a band leader, wasn't he? Because yeah, in a kind of jazz sense, wasn't he? I mean, in the end, nobody could really work out 
what it was that John Mayall did that was remarkable? Well, the answer was he hired people, really. Yeah. He had a a good recruitment policy, didn't he? Yeah, because he certainly wasn't a very pronounced uh, instrumentalist himself and certainly not a great singer. In fact, genuinely out of tune a lot of the time. No doubt about that. But he hired, you know, the likes of, I suppose, uh, well, first of all, Eric Clapton. And, you know, so he had the, the famous John Mayall's Blues Breakers which is John Mayall on keyboards and guitar, and then and then John McVie, yes? John McVie, Huey Flint. John McVie on bass. Huey Flint on the drums, and Eric Clapton reading the Beano. On reading the, the bit, which was a huge thing for me. I was 12 when that came out. And I can remember thinking, I've now put these childish things behind me, the Beano, and here is one of my great heroes reading the Beano. It's back in, it's fashionable again. And they were playing Otis Rush's All Your Love and Double Trouble and, uh, you know, Freddie King's Hideaway and all that all that kind of stuff. And they recorded that album a Decker, didn't they? Probably did it in their day. And it, it was just one of those records that caught on. And then Clapton moved on to, well, to Cream, didn't he? And so Peter Green came in. Uh, as the the kind of featured guitar player. And they made an album called, was it called Hard Road? Yeah. I, I think it was. And then and then he went, he moved on, started Fleetwood Mac. And then did Mick Taylor go in as well? Yeah, Mick Taylor was there. Mick Taylor. So it's just one well, after follows the other. all the way through. One after the other. And then he got kind of, he got tight. He went to America, didn't he? Well, he made a really good record, I think. The one after must have been after Blues from Laurel Canyon it was called The Turning Point. Do you remember that? I adore that record. It was a quite a revolutionary thing. I don't think it did very well. It was quite revolutionary at the time because it was no drums no. and no big electric guitar solos. It was mostly acoustic with John Mark and uh, Johnny, Johnny Armand, I think, wasn't it? It's a really good record. Yeah, he made a live album at the same time. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of lost track a bit, really, but it kept on going, you know. And here he is, 90 years old. He apparently retired from playing live not that long ago. Yeah, he retired two years ago. Said he was too old. It was, but that was entirely because of lockdown. He said, I can't do it anymore, so maybe I should knock it on the head. Hadn't been for lockdown, he would have probably kept going. Yeah. Astonishing. Did, really. Also this week, um, the relatively, uh, you know, whippersnapper age um, of 80, Randy Newman. Randy Newman celebrated his 80th birthday. Uh, A lot of affection for Randy Newman. Of course, the I always remember the interview you did with him. Uh, must have been for Q, I think, where he talked about he'd written the soundtrack to a film. I can't remember which one it was now, which had very, very beautiful um, uh, actors in it. And he goes up on stage to get an Oscar. And he said, I was invisible. Who were the actors he was with? I can't remember. Can you remember? I, it was, no, I think Catherine Ross was one of them. He said, Nobody <laughs> was looking at me. <laughs> I love Randy Newman. I've interviewed him a few times, and he's my absolute favourite person to interview. And... Um, he married twice, and so first wife he had. First wife he had boys, and then and then uh, divorced. You know, when the children were grown up, he divorced, and then he remarried. And then he he wrote a song on one of his records that he made after the divorce. 
all about his ex-wife. And the song was called I Miss You. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I miss you. Sorry, but I do. I miss you. Which I thought, that's a brilliant thing to do. <laughs> that is, you know. It really is. It's so unlike what anybody else would do. Yeah. And uh, and the funny thing about him is that, you know, the kind of um, the critical view of, of Randy Newman is that he's, he's kind of this acid commentator on on the you know, human you know, frailties and uh, and yet when you go and look at, at on Spotify what's his most popular song you've got a friend in me from the soundtrack <laughs> the soundtrack of toy story i think i think the top 5 songs yeah. uh top 5 most popular songs um on Spotify of Randy Newman are these um five just really kind of sweet ballads <laughs> that anybody can apply to. This is going toys. to sound very corny, but the first Randy Newman song I was aware of, and I would have been about, I don't know, 12 or 13 when it came out, was Simon Smith and his amazing dancing Absolutely. band, yeah. which was the Alan Price uh, version of it, yeah. and which I thought Alan Price had written, actually. And uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was a really good song because it so caught the kind of mood of psychedelic whimsy at the time. But I was reading something he wrote about it, and he said, which I didn't know, actually. You'll know he said. He was, uh, he was writing a song. For, it was, the song was for Frank Sinatra Jr. And it was called something like Susie or Mary. And all of a sudden, I, I just couldn't do it. And I ended up somewhere with coat to wear, rhyming with dancing bear. And then the song was never the same. He said, and I was never the same. He said, I never wrote particularly conventional songs after that. So he went off at this tangent and then took the song away from being about this girl, being about a dancing bear. Really interesting. That's a song that's got a line, was it? They're lovers, don't they? They feed us, won't they? Won't they? That's right. <laughs> oh, Play at I, the finest, seen at the finest places where well-fed faces stop and stare. Stop to stare. Yeah. Making the grandest, grandest entrances. Simon, Simon Smith, Smith and his and dancing, dancing bear. bear. Um, I, I, had I may go out tomorrow if I can borrow a coat to coat wear. Coat to wear. Oh, I stepped out in style. Out in style with my, with my sincere, sincere smile, smile. And my, and my dancing bear. And my dancing bear. <laughs> my sincere um, smile. Sincere smile. I had lunch with Randy Newman um, at the Hyde Park Hotel um, when it was still called the Hyde Park Hotel, a very splendid place overlooking Hyde Park, the dining room. Overlooking Hyde Park, it was just after the normal lunchtime. So it was pretty, there was me, Randy Newman, and Mark Knopfler seated at this table with this crisp white tablecloth and this gleaming silverware and glassware and so forth, you know, having some salmon or whatever it was. And it was a sunny day outside. And, uh, and down the road on the side of Hyde Park came a troop of the household cavalry, you know, mounted on horseback, yeah, sun glinting on their coat, their, Wonderful. Their, their, their headgear or whatever. I've never forgotten that. And every time I hear that Elvis Costello song, London's Brilliant Parade, I think of that. You know. Perfect. Because London just does that very occasionally, too. And Randy Newman just looked at this like, 
just couldn't believe it. Yeah. yeah there's kind of, there's an American would have just landed in a movie. They've done this just for me. They've done this just for me. And if they hadn't, they should have. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. In other news this week, Spinal Tap, uh, the, the reunion movie, which I'm immensely enthusiastic about. I know you're not. But I like the idea that these guys have sat and thought about this for ages and they don't want to get it wrong. I can't think of an example of a sequel that more people want to succeed because they're so fond of the original. And amazingly, the vast majority of the key players are all alive. Rob Ryan is still alive, uh, Michael McKean and Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer. Tony Hendra, of course, uh, isn't. Who played The, man, the manager, yeah. And uh, Doris Patrick McNee. But the, oh, no, Fred Willard, actually, I can't think of it. But um, the, the, the idea is that, um, that Ian Faith dies uh in 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 the in the fictional world and his widow uh is given a contract which which stipulates that the band have to reform and play another concert which is actually interesting is exactly the same structure isn't it as waiting for government as best in show and as the mighty win because all three of those it's a brilliant idea are all geared round to a load of people rehearsing getting ready for one big performance so that structure were really suited, I think. And I'm, I've got to say, I'm, I'm looking forward to it immensely. Well, I wish them all well, because obviously nobody made any money at the first one, I don't think at all. And so part of the reason for coming back and doing this as a streaming thing or whatever. whatever they made some know. money touring as a band, I think, didn't they? They did. They probably would, wouldn't have been fast about it. Wouldn't have been, no, it wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been uh, commensurate with the kind of stature of the of the film. Do you know what I think about Spinal Tap? Is it's it's a brilliant, brilliant joke that we carry around in our head, and it's at its best in our head. You know, it's all the jokes that spin off from it. You know, going up to eleven. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, none more black. All those kind of things. There's nothing. There's no encounter with a rock band where you don't naturally think about Spinal Tap. It's just, it's in your head. It's a joke that was put in your head all those years ago and you carry it around with you in order to to, to make you laugh. And it does that splendid it's job. why so many musicians, when they first saw it, didn't, didn't really like it that much because it was so near the bone, wasn't it? They found it upsetting. But you see, I don't actually, whenever I sit down and watch it nowadays, I never find it, all that interesting. Whereas the ones, the Christopher Guest films that I love and watch again and again, Best in Show, Waiting for Goofman, they're, they're, they're just those beautiful, gentle. But films. they're about something completely different. I know, but, but all I'm saying is yeah. I go back to those films again and again and again and absolutely love them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of don't need to go back to Spinal Tap because the jokes, I've got the joke in my head, you know what I mean? And I get value from the joke all the time. Well, those other two films are far, far broader and far deeper because they're about, they're just about different types of people and they're about human interaction, aren't they? Whereas actually Spinal Tap's only about being in a rock and roll band. That's the That's entire awesome. concept of the whole thing. So you get, uh, there's a lot more resonance in the other. But I'm rooting for them. Well, Prove me my- wrong. Mark Allen, no, best of luck to everybody. Mark Allen's bought his ticket already. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. (laughs) 